Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is John Berger. He's an award-winning magazine writer, a contributor to Fortune, a dating expert, and an author. Typically, men are the sexual protagonists. They're the ones who make the first move. They're the ones who come up with cheesy chat-up lines and deal with approach anxiety and rejection. But in a world where women are struggling to find men they're attracted to, what happens if this role is reversed and women start to be more proactive? Expect to learn why the changing sex ratios on university campuses is creating a problem for men and women's dating prospects. How an experiment on dating approach strategies earned a Nobel Prize. Why it is statistically in your advantage to always make the first move. Whether we can fix the problem of raising up men's outcomes in life. And much more. I very much appreciate someone like John who is looking at the imbalance in the sexual marketplace but from a woman's perspective what is it that women can do to make their dating prospects and remember as well the prospects of men too you are takes two to tango in a relationship uh, what happens if they take a little bit more control if they take charge and start to make the first move it is a different and very interesting perspective to look at all of this stuff from all right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. But now, please welcome John Berger. John Berger, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks for having me on the podcast. Talk to me about how you ended up as an authority on the dating market. Well, authority may be a bit strong, but but yeah, the, this is the first question I typically get, which is basically how the heck did a, a business journalist, a writer for Fortune magazine ever end up writing a book about dating? And the answer is basically the, it actually has a lot to do with, with my years at Fortune magazine. The editorial staff at Fortune was more women than men, but it was one of these things where I couldn't help but notice that most of the men at Fortune were either married like myself or involved in long-term relationships. Whereas the women, especially the ones I seemed to know best and I was friends with, they were disproportionately single. And they weren't just single. They had all these dating horror stories and dating histories that that made no sense to me, especially since, from my perspective, a lot of them seemed to have way more going for them dating-wise than we guys did. Um, so the, the origin of my first book, Datanomics, was basically just trying to explain 
how we got to a world in which dating had become so much easier for men than for women. What was the summary of what you found out during that research? So initially, I thought this had something to do with the job markets in in these really cosmopolitan cities like New York or London or Toronto, L.A. Like I thought there was something about the the industries, the job markets in these cities that was drawing more women, particularly college educated women um, to these cities than than men. And that was that was my premise for datanomics. But it turns out I was wrong, that this is not a a big city versus small town problem. This is an everywhere issue. So basically in every Western country and in many non-Western countries as well, over the past 20, 30 years, we've had about one third more women than men graduate from college or graduate from, from uni, as you may call it you know, overseas. Um, uh, and as a result, you end up with a dating pool after college that has, you know, one third more women than men. And now obviously this wouldn't matter at all if we were more open-minded about whom we date and eventually marry. But at the same time that, that, that this higher education gender imbalance has become wider and wider. There's been a, a simultaneous increase in what academics refer to as assortative mating, which is just a fancy way of saying that university grads tend to want to date and marry other university grads. What do you think is the root of the assortative mating increase? I, I, I think a lot of it just is familiarity. I mean, people tend to date and, event and marry people who we come in contact with. Um, and I think, you know, 30, 40 years ago, I think there were more, like the communities we lived in were more mixed when it came to socioeconomics. Um, and you might go to a church or a social club with people of more varied backgrounds. But I think because of kind of some of the social stratification we've seen because of economic changes, I, I, I feel like I could be wrong about this, but, but my, 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 answer, my, my theory on your question is that um, university grads and non-university grads don't rub elbows in the same way they once did 30, 40 years ago. And I think that's kind of the root, the root cause of it. But I mean, I, a big theme of both datanomics and my new book, Make Your Move, is encouraging people to get past this and to be open-minded about dating people, you know, for, you know, with different educational backgrounds, because I think that's the key to solving this problem. With the sex ratio hypothesis, and I've read a bunch of different studies, including, I think, the original seminal one that was done on it, is a hell of an effect. You know, you see really, really bizarre changes in the way that people respond to their local ecology. So there's this sentence in the study where it says, it's almost as if human mating strategy responds to its local ecology, like a plant or something, right? That you adapt the way that you go about finding and refining your potential partner pool based on the relative number of men and women and what your uh, sex is as well. So if you are a guy and you have a surplus of other men, you have to play the game, so to speak, that women want, which tends to be more dates before first sex. It means that you end up with less casual sex. You have higher rates of virginity, blah, blah, blah. 
reverse that when you have a surplus of women and a scarcity of men you have more casual sex you have fewer dates before sex and i think you have an increase in sexual violence as well when you have a, a scarcity of men and an increase of women but the bottom line is that it's it's a very strange impact across both yeah yeah the, the you know in terms of the sexual violence one of the things i i I discovered when researching the first book, Datanomics, was I, I spent some time looking at at um, trends in China, where you kind of see the opposite, where because of the old one, the, the one-child policy in China, um, you have a group of marriage-age people where the overall population is more male than female, and what's interesting is that as the as the youth population skewed more and more male. Various levels of criminality increased, you know, um, uh, you know uh, burglary, murder, things like that. The only category of major crime that declined as the population became more male was was sexual assault. And the theory um, um, the, the theory put forth by the author of the study was, you know, it's kind of crass, but she argued that as um, when women are more scarce, men value them more um, and are more protective of them. Even if they're not in a relationship or don't think that they have a chance at being in a relationship with them. Yeah, I, 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 th you know, I think this is more of a when in Rome thing than people making conscious decisions about how to behave based on a headcount. I just think that the 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 culture as you alluded to the culture changes depending upon these these prevailing sex ratios and what's interesting is that most of the the sex ratio sex ratio research that you alluded to that that has been you know come out over the past 20 30 40 years it it kind of evolved from research on other species and in other in, in other mammals, other primates, um, you see similar things that when you have imbalances in the sex ratio among the mating population, you get the same sort of behavioral changes that we have observed when it comes to human mating and human dating. Well, one of the things that's interesting about the China study there is the increase in antisocial behavior and violent and non-violent crimes amongst men because this is something else that you learn as soon as a man gets into a relationship his testosterone drops and then when a man has children his testosterone drops again why well it's because if you are potentially going to father a child or you're now the father of a child going out and doing something reckless or getting into a fight you don't need to do that right. anymore it's way 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 too much of a risk so it's much smarter for you to down regulate that testosterone to be a more careful parent to not get angry at the fact that your child won't stop crying or whatever it might be um but this is one of the dangerous things you know these imbalances in the in the sexual marketplace are leading to an underclass of sexless men which can create quite a dangerous foundation for you to then sit society well, on top of i i agree with everything you said but what's what's for me, extra interesting about this is th this um, what you just described about putting men into competitive situations and suddenly their testosterone levels rise and you get more antisocial behavior. It's actually not just men that that when when you put women into competitive situations, their testosterone levels rise too. And if you read Hannah Rosen's book, The End of Men, she has a whole section all about rising criminality rates among women. 
and and how uh, putting women into increasingly competitive situations has 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 led to a rise in female criminality. No way. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So so I so a lot of these things that we like to say, you know, it's a guy thing or a girl thing. It's actually a human thing, and and I'm I'm always trying to kind of pull it back to say, you know what, you know, th- this is about us as humans, not necessarily about you as a woman, me as a man, etc. Do cities make this worse? Then did you find that the research coming out of cities further amplified these problems? I mean, I I thought that was going to be the case because I've I've lived in New York City for a long time and I've heard my female friends have all these dating horror stories, but I'm not sure it's actually true. I mean, the the, the imbalance, at least in the U.S., is actually greater in rural states like West Virginia than it is in Manhattan. Um, so I'm I'm and I've interviewed also, you know lots of matchmakers in less populous parts of the country um, uh, where they've told me stories that sound very similar to what I've heard from people in New York City. So I assumed assumed that the city situation would be worse. I'm just not sure it actually is. What was the response like from women and men when you did your post book tour and you were talking about datanomics? I mean, I mean, with datanomics, I, I think for the women who showed up at my lectures, book events, I, I think it was kind of a sense of relief that finally, like, th- they knew there was something really messed up in the dating market. And all their married friends and their mothers and their grandmothers and their aunts kept telling them that they must be doing something wrong. Um, and I think for a lot of them, just hearing that this is actually a statistical problem, a behavioral problem, provided some sense of relief that it wasn't their fault. Um, but I will say, I, like I, I didn't envision datanomics as an advice book at all. It was kind of more pop science. Um, I had a really snooty attitude towards the whole self-help genre, I think, because I came from this, you know, serious journalism background writing for fortune. Um, but when I got out on book tour with datanomics, while women, yes, were relieved to hear that there was this bigger problem that wasn't their fault and explained some of their experiences, they still wanted me to tell them what to do about it. And I didn't, I didn't really have any great answers for them then. And that's kind of what led to the, the second book. What did men say after datanomics? <sighs> well, you, you may not be surprised shocked to hear this, but men don't usually buy dating books. Um, Men actually don't buy self-help books in general. Um, So yeah, I did get some feedback from men. And if you Google my name, uh, like on some of the Reddit boards that deal with the red pill crowd, um, to me, like from what I read, it kind of sort of verified what they believed about um, the competitive nature of of relations between the sexes, but I, I wasn't really writing for men. I mean, I think this is a, this is a, a problem that exists for women. And the reason I wrote the book is because I didn't understand. And my wife didn't understand what, why we had all these single female friends who had everything going for them, but couldn't seem to find a decent guy. Okay. So that's datanomics, which is basically you've, you've created a problem for yourself. 
You've identified that there is an issue uh, yes. in the sexual marketplace, but there's an open loop on the end of this, which is, and what do we do about it? And that's where yeah. the next one comes in. Yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, it was probably cruel of me to write a whole book. No, kind of get out. two they, books. They, they, get they, two books out of it, John. Don't well, give people every all of the fucking answers in one. No, 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 Chris, you're you're right from that point of view. But I will say, my my editor for Datanomics, a a brilliant woman named Maisie Tibnan, she she kept telling me that I needed more solutions and more hope in the book. And I kept ignoring her because, again, I had this snooty attitude towards the genre. And the last thing in the world I wanted to do was become the love doctor. Well, let me give you, so, let me just interject there because yeah. I'm having a, a conversation at the moment with a couple of different publishers. And one of the potential things that I would be interested in writing about is this imbalance in the dating market. I think it's fascinating. I think it's relevant. I think that it has existential consequences for society, right? <laughs> one of the very rough outlines that I sent over to a very, very good, well-known publisher. They came back and said something along the lines of, um, we would need it to be much more lighthearted because this yeah. doesn't sound like a tremendously uplifting book. And they put in bold letters at the bottom, must uplift the reader. I'm like, well, to be uh, honest, no, you're right. No, no I, it's not massively uplifting. So in this genre, if you're going to write a self-help book, there has to be hope. It has to be uplifting. This is something I heard a lot. So I'm not the least bit surprised that that um, and if you look at the at the self-help books that sell well, they always are are positive and they have solutions. And, and that that book I referenced before, The End of Men by Hannah Rosen, um, it's a brilliant book, but I don't think it sold pretty you know, sold terribly four well. Copies, yeah, well, I can already tell well, the, from the title. Yeah, the title. <laughs> well, the, the, the title itself is is kind of dark, right? Um, and I mean, honestly, the Datanomics was not my preferred title for Datanomics. What would you have called my, it? I wanted to call it the Man Deficit. Yes, yeah, because you—that's one of the chapters, right? Right, right, it, it, but but. I was getting the same feedback you got. That's 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 depressing. That's dark. It had not uplifting enough. Um, but for me, it, it kind of, you know, I. I mean, these folks know way more about selling books than you and I do. So I'm not I'm not arguing against their you know their knowledge. But to me, the man deficit was more what the book was going to be about. But what's the point in, in writing the book if nobody's going to read it? So, um, so I, I, I get where they're coming from. And I do think, I mean, I, honestly, I mean, one of my, I think in hindsight, one of my, I don't know if it was a problem or maybe I didn't emphasize it enough with datanomics was that I was way more interested in solving the boy problem in education than I was in solving the dating problem for women. Well, that's two um, two solutions to the same problem, right? Typically, women are dating hypergamously as you have an increased number of women that are within a educated or highly educated field. They compete themselves out of their own dating pool because there are ever fewer and fewer men that are above and across from where those women are. So there are two two solutions that you can either get women to change the way that they're aiming or you can begin to bring the waterline of men up. Right, but but... As you can imagine, the there probably isn't a huge market for books on education policy. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you, if you read Datanomics, but the last chapter is, is highly um, 
focused on on how we solve the boy problem in education and also trying to provide some advice to to young people applying to college and to their parents or or universities you may refer to it in the uk um just letting them know that that the, the the prevailing sex ratios on college campuses have a huge impact on the campus culture particularly when it comes to dating um, I don't know if you want to get into that a little bit, but 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 to me, I think actually getting back to your first question, that or your prior question, this this was a a big reaction of the book that that particularly young people who had just graduated from college or parents of college or university applicants were telling me how shocked they were by some of the anecdotes and some of the research and datanomics showing how prevailing sex ratios on a college campus can have a huge impact on on the way kids on campus view dating. How so? So in Datanomics, I did a, uh, an, an analysis of about 40 major public and private universities, and I, I ranked them by their, their sex ratios. And I paired that ranking with students own descriptions of what dating life is like on these college campuses and the descriptions came courtesy of the college prowler um uh you know college review book it's basically a a book written for applicants you know so if you want to know what the um you know what the engineering program is like at university of georgia or what the cafeteria food is like or in this case what what the dating life is like there, you can read, you can read, and it's all written by current or recent students. So you can get a sense of what, what life is like, you know, on these college campuses. And it was really, it was, it was really striking how differently kids talked about dating at various schools, depending upon the the prevailing sex ratios. And I'll give you some examples here. So Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is kind of a science and engineering school in upstate New York, RPI. Um, RPI is about 70% men, 30% women, two, you know, more than two men for every one woman. And it, here's what students said about dating at RPI. More people are involved in relationships. Girls seem to become stuck up because they're in such a minority that they can afford to be choosy. Um, Caltech, which is you know California Institute of Technology in California, and if and if you remind me, I have an I have a funny story about Caltech, which I can add at the end. Um, it, Caltech is 60 percent men, forty percent women, three women for every two, three men for every two women. Uh, here's what students said there about dating. Students here tend not to date but have relationships. Breakups are rare, and many couples get married after Caltech. Um, even the schools that were 50-50, it was kind of a more, it was more familiar to me as a 50-year-old guy when it came to like what I remember about college. So Tufts University, which is in suburban Boston, uh, Tufts is 50-50. Halfway through sophomore year, people begin to pair off and generally stay paired off through junior and senior year. That's, that was, that's familiar to me. That's what I remember. Um, University of Miami, which has a, rep- a reputation as a big party school, but it also happens to be 50-50. And here's what, um, what students say about dating there. Random hookups are common in the beginning, but after a few months or a year, relationships take over. 
So compare that, the schools that are either more men than women or 50-50, or to some of the schools that are disproportionately female. I'll start with New York, New York University in New York City. Uh, NYU is 61% female, 39% male, again, three. Is that, that's about representative typically, I think, on average for most colleges now? It, it, it wasn't when I wrote the, it was more like 75, 35, not 75, it was more like, um, I'm sorry, it, it was it was closer to 58, 30, uh, 42, 42 yeah. when I wrote the, <clears throat> but we're or now maybe looking, 57, 33. By, by 2030, but, we're going to be. But, 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 now, but now it's, yep, but I think this year's graduating class, I think you're right. I think at least in the US, it's 60, 40. It's going to be bang on. So, so New York. Yeah. So NYU, New York University, here's what what kids say about dating at NYU. Guys take advantage of the male to female ratio and most have no plans of settling into a long term relationship. Um, Boston University, where actually my son is a senior, um, BU is 62 percent female, 38 percent male. Here's the comment. Freshman year is a sexual explosion. There are girls to go around and around again. And lastly, Sarah Lawrence College, which used to be an all-girls school in in suburban New York. It's now co-ed, but it's 75% female, 25% male, three women for every one man. You could probably guess what I'm about to read to you, but but let me share. Quote, the girls complain about loneliness, the guys get more than they can handle, and mindless one-night stands are rampant. So, so for me, like doing the, doing the college research really kind of showed how these prevailing sex ratios don't just affect the statistical odds of getting into a relationship, but they change culture, they change behavior as well. Yeah, and rolling the clock forward the people that graduate from those colleges, presuming that men and women drop out at similar rates. I think men might drop out a little bit more than women, actually, but probably not enough to rebalance this uh, sex ratio that we've got. And I think that, yeah, you'd be about right at saying 60-40 women to men, but by 2030, the projection is two-thirds women to one-third men at a four-year U.S. college. So this trend is going to continue to get more and more pronounced. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 as I said, with my first book, I, I, you know, part of my purpose in writing it was, was reversing that trend and trying to figure out how we get more, more men to attend university or college. Um, but that's kind of a, that's a long-term thing. It's not going to solve the dating problem in the short term. Well, the other thing is that dating is inherently an individual act right dating right. Your, your dating strategy what sort of partner you're looking for how you're going about looking for a partner that's something that you can impact individually what you're trying to do or what you would be trying to do there by continuing to improve men's desire to go to college that's systemic right that's completely that's a big broad social change that you're trying to get to do yes it happens individually one by one by one but i feel like trying to impact individuals dating strategies is a simpler problem than trying to improve an entire sex's view of how to go to college 
No, no, you're right. But I guess from my point of view, the boy problem in education isn't just a dating problem. Oh yeah, I, a, men don't just yeah, go to yeah, college to yeah, get laid. Yeah. 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 Uh, although no, your no, son, no. your son did choose one of the uh, colleges well, that's well, got a higher female so, ratio. So, 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 so my son is actually gay. So he gets. Oh zero God, he's ruined it. I know, I know. Why didn't he uh, go to the one with the technology college with seventy five percent men? Because because I um believe it or not, prevailing sex ratios have no impact on same sex dating. Because you can always divide by two. The rules are just thrown out of the window. But but I will say my my son my, my gay my son Alex says he has lots of wonderful female friends. Um um but yeah, he gets no benefit from the the oversupply of, of fabulous women at BU. Bloody hell. Okay, so getting on to make your move, what are the mistakes that men make that you're trying to get women to avoid making? Well, I so I the book is really written for women. Uh, because that's who buys dating books. And, you know, th there are two big themes of Make Your Move. Um, the first one is basically encouraging women to be more assertive, to make the first move with men, because, and we can get into this, I, I believe that, the, that research shows there are lots of advantages to doing so. And it's going to be easier to find your true love, so to speak, if you don't wait and wait for him to find you. And the second big theme of, of Make Your Move, and I think this has been a little bit more controversial, but I'm happy to, to make my arguments, is encouraging people to get off the dating apps because I, I, don't, I, I don't think online dating has been good for, for relationships, for romance, and I think it's only going to get worse. Talk to me about how you think the Me Too movement impacted dating. I, so I, I, I look at it from the standpoint of, of women and yeah, I, okay, I'm not, I mean, I think in general, I think the Me Too movement has been good for, for dating and good for men because it's clearer now that there was a lot of gray area behavior before Me Too, which men, I think, unfortunately thought was okay, but never really was okay. And, and me probably like lots of other men i'm you know after the me me too movement launched i i spent some time thinking back about experiences i'd had when i was younger that seemed perfectly fine at the time but weren't and i think i i i think this has been important um but i think there's a real value for everyone to think about how the gains the, the the changes and gains we've made thanks to the me too movement how that might impact traditional dating strategies that involve playing hard to get because as you know pretty much every popular dating book that's been written over the past 30 years from the rules to ignore the guy, get the guy, to why men love bitches, that they all revolve around a very complicated version of playing hard to get. Um, and look, I, I wasn't dating in 1950. Maybe playing hard to get worked really, really well back then. And I'm not saying it didn't. But I do believe that nowadays, and I actually think to a certain extent, even before the Me Too movement, that playing hard to get has become harder and harder. And I mean, think about it this way, that, that 
if you're a guy at a party and you're talking to a woman and she seems disinterested, the correct response is not to assume she's playing hard to get and wants you to keep at it. The correct response is to leave her alone. So if you have all these, all these dating book gurus, like the rules ladies, telling women, and I think in one of their books, it, they actually say explicitly, um, uh, don't act so interested, treat them like a guy you don't like. Well, that's not gonna work nowadays. And I, I'm not saying that to defend the men. I'm saying this to give an advantage to women. Because if you as a single woman know that guys are going to be more hesitant and more reluctant to make the first move, wow, you have a huge built-in advantage over other women who are sitting back and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the guy they like to step up. Because those women are so, playing by the old rules and you're right. playing by the new rules. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, right. this is the wild thing. And I really feel for young guys now that are coming up. I was on a, a night out not long ago with one of my friends, young dude, real successful guy, big YouTube channel, university degree, prestigious uni, all this stuff. We were on a night out and I was like, oh, there's a group of girls over there. Why don't we go up and talk to them? I'm like bored of your crack. I'm bored of what you've got to say to me. Yeah. Like, why don't we go, go up and talk to them? And he, he looked like I'd suggested that we go and like, pour their drink over their head. Couldn't believe the fact that I was suggesting yeah. that we go up and speak to a girl. No, I would never. I would absolutely never. What about all of the Me Too stuff? And that was the first time that I've ever seen in real life You know, somebody that's close to me, that has similar values to myself, that's British, show the impact the fear like complete terror and i think that you you quote it in the book you say men used to worry about being rejected now they're worried about being labeled a predator yeah that's a, a quote from a um from brian howie who's who who uh, brian um runs kind of a a, a comedy show or or kind of a, a, a dating town hall called um, The Great Love Debate. And that was a quote from Brian. I mean, he does these kind of dating town halls all across the U.S. And, and that was that was his takeaway. Uh, but I'm curious, your friend, is he younger than you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 21, 22. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, what's when I talk to both men and women that age and that age group, I'm always amazed that there's like this, I mean, obviously awkwardness and embarrassment like it's never a good thing, but I feel like with the the Gen Z crowd, there is a next level fear of saying or doing the wrong thing. Hypersensitive. A, a next like it, any kind of awkwardness terrifies them, and I, you know I this doesn't bode well for dating because dating really involves taking chances. But the good news for women is that that. You know, my, my kind of go-to line when I'm talking about make your move on the lecture circuit is that men like women who like them. So, so when a woman takes a chance, um, you know, striking a, up a conversation with a guy, the odds of her having blowback are far less. Um, and even though she's anxious and, and she's worried and she feels the awkwardness, I, 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 I think the odds of it being a positive experience are better than for your your friend. Or, or maybe it's all in our heads, but I think 
even if it is all in our heads, I, I just think there are these huge advantages for women to to making the first move, particularly if they've already identified the guy they like. This is the double-edged sword of um, the repercussions of Me Too into the dating market, I think, that I, I can sympathize with the young guys who are lonely, um, would love to get a girlfriend, but are now terrified of being labeled a predator. I think that one of the best fixes that you could have would be for women to kind of get a firmware update to their operating system and realize that men aren't playing by that old set of rules anymore. So the thing is that women who aren't interested and women who are interested are both using the same strategies to respond to men that approach them. And the men aren't playing by that set of rules anymore. If you say no to a guy and he's a, a respectable guy that's learned from me too, he's going to think, oh, I've fucking hell like i'd better not i better not push this i don't want to end up on the the front page of reddit tomorrow and right but if if yeah. you're doing that in some sort of a strategy to say well if i say no that's kind of this sexy men love bitches strategy thing i, I think that explains a lot about why sort of chatting up and the circuits of dating are, are, are crumbling a bit so I, I had an interesting conversation with a woman named francesca hoagie who is a kind of a high profile dating coach, matchmaker in Los Angeles. And we were talking about this very thing. And, and here's what I'm just, I'm reading from the book here. She says, quote, if a woman comes across as indifferent, men will take that as a sign that she's not interested and will move on. It's getting to a point that if the woman doesn't make the first move, the men are not going to. This is not the time to be demure, at least not if you're single and don't want to be single. And, and I, I think she's right. I mean, I'm obviously... I'm, I'm generalizing and there are going to be individual situations that, that play out differently, but I'm writing, you know, my, the advice and make your move is macro, not micro. And so I, I can't, I can't account for every individual situation, but I, I, I think what you just described is spot on and that there has been this culture shift and as a result, women who are willing to make the first move, or or at least make it clear to men that if the, if they make that, that like just to open the door wide enough so that the men know that that it's safe to walk clear, through clear unambiguous sing signal, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I mean, I think like what happens as somebody who like me who's writing dating books and telling and sort of pushing out the idea of women making the first move is that you get people from the play hard to get crowd who they they're quick to say oh terrible things happen to women who make the first move and they paint this picture that's kind of like cruella deville chasing some poor guy down the street and and, and that's their image of what a woman making the first move is and to me you know I, a first move by a woman can be much more subtle. I'll just give you an example from the book. There's a, a woman I interviewed, um, very attractive, really big personality. And, you know, some guys are a little intimidated by women who are kind of the life of the party. Uh, but but she was at a, um, at a Super Bowl party a few years ago talking to a guy who she really liked a lot. Um, uh, but he seemed nervous and wasn't sure what to do. So after like 45 minutes, she said to him, so are you going to ask for my number? Now, she didn't have to grab his ass or like, you know, buy him a drink or, you know, like she didn't have to do anything outrageous 
all she had to do was make it clear to him that that if she, if he called her or he texted her, she would say yes. And and that's you know that's the great thing from my perspective when it comes to women making the first move is that it doesn't have to be this this giant display, um, this big event the way it sometimes the way men sometimes think it has to be. What was that Melinda Gates story? So the, the Melinda Gates, so let, let me see if I can find it. Oh, um, so the, the what's interesting, you know, I, I'm a big fan of dating in the workplace. And, I, and you know, the research shows that, um, that couples who meet at work marry at a much higher rate than couples who meet in any other way. I think that the marriage rate for workplace romances is something like 30%, which is crazy high. Um, and you, you don't really like it. You don't need a, a PhD in relationship science to understand why workplace relationships succeed. I mean, you already know the person. So like, um, I, mean, I, when I think about like the U.S. version of The Office with, uh, you know, with 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 Jim and Pam. I mean, they they knew everything about each other long before they went out on an actual date. Um, so to me, they were like all, you know, like halfway there or more before the first date. And I think this is the advantage of dating people you you know from work because you've seen them at their best, best and their worst. Somebody who is a good person in the workplace is going to probably be a good person in the relationship. Somebody who is selfish um, or cruel in the workplace is going to be selfish and cruel in a relationship. But obviously there are, there are challenges to um, with workplace dating, particularly nowadays. And you alluded to this Bill and Melinda Gates story about how they first started dating. Um, and I, I came across this podcast interview that Melinda Gates gave before they were divorced. <laughs> but but she was talking about how um, how she and Bill first started dating. And I guess they had met at some kind of a manager's retreat. And uh, like a month later, he called her up. And he, he and according to her, he said, you know, I was thinking maybe we could go out if you give me your phone number. Uh, maybe two weeks from tonight. And that's that's Melinda's recollection. And Melinda basically did what any self-respecting 1990s woman would have done. She played hard to get. And she said, I said to him two weeks from tonight, I have no idea what I'm doing two weeks from tonight. And I said, you're not spontaneous enough for me. Um, so, but he didn't, Bill didn't take no for an answer. And this is how she described it. Um, it was really sweet, Melinda recalled. He called back an hour later and said, is this spontaneous enough for you? And like when I heard her tell this story, my initial reaction was, oh, that's a cute story. Because I grew up in an era where that would have been a cute story. That's not a cute story nowadays. No, that's a, that's a harassment lawsuit waiting for you right. the next day. The CEO ringing some assistant right. girl twice after she said no. That is, right. yeah, Forbes Forbes article in New York Times front page. Right, right, yeah. So, so, so that that's the Bill and Melinda Gates story. But I, I have to say, I I'm I, I don't like these corporate rules that that ban people from dating. Like, if the if the single CEO of McDonald's wants to be in a relationship with another a, a single executive at McDonald's, um, I I don't. 
you know, as long as there's everything's above board and I, I don't see the harm in that. Um, but I guess it really depends what you prioritize. I mean, if, um, if you put a high priority on, 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 you know, marriage and family, maybe you're going to be more willing to take a risk with an office romance than you would be if you're just looking for a hookup. Going back to men and women's complete inability to decipher what the other sex is asking them to do, didn't you look at how useless men and women are at distinguishing flirting? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, I honestly think this is, this is the fundamental problem because I think particularly when you talk to singles about making the first move, they'll say, well, I was really clear. I flirted with him. Um, he obviously wasn't interested or maybe she wasn't interested. Um, the, 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 yeah, the, the, I quote some science, some research in the book, which shows that I think it was 65 or 70% of flirtations are completely lost on the person on the receiving end. So if you're a woman, all those shoe dangles and hair flips, uh, he has no idea what you're, what's going on. And I, I actually had this funny conversation with my literary agent and she was telling me, Oh my God, if I did a shoe dangle with my husband, he would have thought there was something wrong with my foot. Man, here's the thing, like, both men and women are, are bad at detecting subtle advances, but the environment that we have in 2022 is increasingly neurotic, and people are less able to deal with awkwardness. There are more externalities with being rebuffed. You don't want to end up as the, the butt of the joke in some WhatsApp group chat the next morning. Oh, you won't believe what this girl did when or guy did when they came over. So it's almost like the risks are kind of higher in a way, for people who do want to do the approach. And given the fact that women culturally just aren't the sexual protagonists ever, you know, in history, it's very rare to have that being held up as some archetype that everybody finds admirable. Um, it doesn't surprise me. And all of this wound up together explains, it's one of the many reasons why I think it's men between the ages of 18 and 30 uh, are reporting three times as many men in the last 10 years are reporting no sex within the last year. Three times as many men between the ages of 18 and 30. That's the age during which most men would be, you know, having sex, being single, perhaps meeting new women, going through multiple relationships. But yeah, when you've got, no one can determine whether each other is flirting and both sexes are so terrified as to not flirt. That yeah that it doesn't happen, it doesn't surprise me. See, yeah, see, but from my perspective, I'm writing for women. And to me, what you see as a negative, I view as this massive opportunity for single women because those who are willing to take a chance just have this huge advantage um, because the marketplace, so to speak, um, is so different than it used to be. Well, you stand out, right, immediately. And you call this the, the suitor's advantage. Explain that to me. So uh, I have this quip in the book in which I, I say that the that making the first move is the only um, 
is the only dating strategy ever to be awarded a Nobel Prize. And that's kind of true, uh, but but only kind of. Um, so there, there are a pair of economists who won the Nobel Prize for what they called uh, matching strategy. And matching for them, yes, it involves relationships and marriage, but it also involves school admissions, uh, you know, uh, job applications, hiring, things like that, uh, any kind of matching. And what they found in their research is that whichever party initiates the match on average has a has a better outcome than the than the one on the receiving end. And when you think about this from a dating perspective, it doesn't it makes perfect sense because one of the advantages that men traditionally always had is that at least if they were courageous enough, at least they had a chance with their first choice woman. Right. So all they had to do was was ask her out. Um, she could say no. She could say yes. But at least you got, you got kind of a definitive answer if, if you're willing to ask the question. And it was society said it was OK for you to you know ask Susie out on the date because that's what men do. But if you're Susie and you've always liked Chris, um, but society says you can't. You can't ask Chris out on the date. You have to wait for him to notice me. Um, that's tricky because, you know, as I said, most people aren't good at communicating romantic interests. So, so if your if your options are limited to the people who make a first move with you, it's no surprise that the the outcomes on average are going to be worse for people who are on the receiving end of the matchmaking process rather than those who initiate the match. That was borne out in an, a bunch of experiments that you did, right? Where you got men and women to rank each other based on what they wanted and then men approached and women approached and whichever sex was the one that decided to be proactive, they on average, all of them ended up with a higher level um, rating. Well, I, I wish I could say it was my research, but this was actually part of the research that won the Nobel Prize. So there's these Whatever. two Whatever. Take it. Take but, it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have my Nobel Prize in my closet back there. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that was the gist of it, that, that um, in this experiment, the, the, the men were the ones who were allowed to propose marriage, essentially. And the men, on average, ended up with higher ranked women on their list i'd have to go through the math and you probably don't want me to but 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 the the gist of it is the outcome was on average better for the for the men in this experiment than it was for the women and i think it's for all the reasons you know i i just discussed you say that women in their 20s have an advantage at finding a partner as well how come so I might not put it that way, but I do think there's an advantage to starting earlier um, that, you know, the um, there's a lot of messaging that singles, I I would say women particularly, but I actually think it's it's men and women as well that, that, that you hear like young educated people are told that it's best to focus on your career in your 20s and worry about relationships or family in your 30s. And um, 
to me, there are all sorts of problems with this advice. First, if you're actually worried about your career and your earnings, research actually shows that, that coupled people, married people earn more than single people. So the, the, the whole kind of note, you know, the, the economic notion underlying this advice is simply wrong. But there's also kind of an assumption built into this that dating will be just as easy at 31 as it was at 23. And for men, for educated men, it is. It's actually easier. But for women, it gets harder. And I, I always like to compare this to the game of musical chairs. Chris, did you ever play musical chairs as, yeah, of a, as a kid? I was a world champion. Yeah, yeah. right. So, yeah, okay. So, so you know the basic idea. Like you, you know, you you start out with twenty five players and twenty four chairs, and um, in the first round of musical chairs, in that in that case, you have maybe a, a four or five percent chance of losing in the first round. By the last round of musical chairs, when there's two players in one chair, you have a fifty percent chance of losing the game. So the the more players and chairs are taken out of the game, the greater your odds of losing. And this is what you see playing out um, in dating uh, in, in with with educated people. When you know w w this is the situation women are facing. So let's say you start out with a dating pool with forty women and thirty men. Um, once half of the women get married, once 20 of the women get married to 20 of the men, the, the rate, you know, the, the dating pool becomes 20 women and 10 men. So we've gone from a four to three ratio to a two to one ratio. Once five more couples pair off, it becomes 15 women and five men, a, a three to one ratio. So the point I'm always making, look, is if you if you prioritize marriage, if you're a woman who prioritizes marriage, there is there is no reason to to delay, um, you know, either in terms of economics or career. As I said, the, the I, I've yet to see any good evidence that, that focusing on career, not family in your 20s is beneficial, but especially when it comes to relationships, because the 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 dating math is just going to get harder um, as you get older. Although, and you know, one of my one of my arguments in Make Your Move is that there is an advantage for older women to dip down age-wise. Um, and I know a bunch of couples where it's kind of a a reverse age gap: a woman, you know, five six years older than the man. Um, and by by dipping down age-wise, women can kind of offset some of this. Well, this, for, I wanted to explain for the people who don't understand why this is obvious, the reason that it's more of a problem for women dating at 31 than it is for men dating at 31 is that women, as they get older, on average, are dating men that are their age or older, right? Whereas men have a broader cross-section of women that they can access who are younger than them. So it means that men basically get a, a broader dating pool as they get older, Technically, you, no, that's absolutely true. But, but what I'm saying is that even if people were only dating others their exact age, if if 28 year olds were only dating 28 year olds, you would still get this musical chairs yeah, problem yeah. that I, I laid out. Yeah, um, yeah. But but you're absolutely right that that the problem becomes worse because men kind of have this, you know, huge pool that they can older men like the 31 year old man can date you know, more broadly than the woman who is 
who through custom or experience or socialization thinks she can only date somebody, you know, a year or two or somebody older than them. Yeah. Um, well, another another and, consideration here in terms of attractiveness to men is that one of the fundamental things that men are typically attracted to is youth signaled through fertility, right? Or fertility signaled through youth, which is, you know, you can imagine a, a girl who spends her 20s uh, going to college and maybe getting a postgraduate degree as well and then, you know, working her way up through a, a company to be a high-powered executive to then get to the stage that she's 31 and says, right, I'm now ready to find Mr. Right and go after him. And she doesn't realize that Mr. Right very well may be more attracted to the 24-year-old Starbucks employee who is younger and in his eyes fitter than this girl. Many men, not all men, but on average, men don't value education levels as much as women do. They also don't value resource levels as much as women do. Yeah, I, I, I mean, certainly that's, I, I think that's been the case in the past. But, you know, there was an interesting OkCupid study which came out like, probably six years ago in which they found that, um, that, that except on the margins, except for young women who are basically supermodels men didn't really perceive a big attractiveness difference between say a 33 year old woman and a 23 year old woman and that, that this that this notion that, that men all favor youth it wasn't exactly borne out by the data yet but but yeah I mean, if there's some 20 year old 21 year old model or starlet yes yeah, that's that's interesting. But, yeah, that's that that would that runs pretty counter to to what I would have expected and what I've seen in a in a, a fair bit of data. But again, another one of the another one of the things to consider here is that the men, as they get older, they are accumulating more status and resources, which allows them to slowly rise up through their own dominance hierarchy, the competence hierarchy as well. So the men that are twenty one who might want to try and date the twenty five year old woman. Are competing with the men who are 31 who have 10 more years of experience yeah. and charisma and status and resources and the understanding of what shirt goes with what pants and stuff like that so it makes it a, a more difficult game well, you know the, the the um the couple who i feature in the chapter on these reverse age gaps on on women dating younger men um yeah i think when they got together she was 32 when he was maybe 27 or 26. And um, one of the things that they talked about was that when he was dating people his own age, um, he's a very competitive person. And he was frequently dating women who were in his own field. He's a kind of a, a photographer, designer, arts type. And he would get really pissed off and jealous um, anytime his girlfriends seemed to be doing a little bit better than them career-wise. And one of the things that they talked about is that this kind of competitiveness was really a non-issue for them because he understood that she was five years ahead of him career-wise. Um, and it actually made the relationship easier because she could be really supportive of him and he could take her advice. And there wasn't this kind of friction of two like successful people the same age, you know, two, two doctors, two lawyers um, who are married to each other and are anxious about 
about you know uh, about the status of their career um and i do think that these these reverse age age gaps can kind of address this problem that you hear women talk about all the time about about having a hard time finding men who are comfortable with their success yeah and i think you know if you if you date a younger man i think that's going to be easier Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder, it would be interesting to see some more research on this. I think that it's going to be difficult for women to fundamentally be attracted to men that are younger than them. Um, so I've got a, a, a little bit of research here from Vincent Harinam, if you're familiar with him. Guy writes, not, for, writes for Quillette, data scientist, very interested in the dating market. You'd love his stuff. I'll send you some articles once we're done. Um, so this is just a, a, a bunch of stuff that you might not have been familiar with, all fairly recent research. So I'm just going to do r- run through some of this and I'll get your thoughts afterward. Let us consider height. According to one study, women were most satisfied when their partner was 21 centimeters taller. This was corroborated by other studies which found that 49% of women prefer dating taller men and that the shortest man a woman would date is 5 feet 9 inches on average. A 1939 study found that American women rated good financial prospects twice as highly as males when gauging the value of a marriage partner. This finding was replicated in studies conducted in 1956 and 1967. Moreover, David Buss attempted to replicate these studies, surveyed 1,491 Americans across four states in the mid-1980s. Once again, women valued good financial prospects in a mate roughly twice as much as a male did. This gender difference has not changed. In fact, a 2014 Pew Research survey reported that 78% of unmarried women placed a high premium on finding a spouse with a steady job. Only 48% of men shared this view. In the study, the attributes valued in a marriage partner, psychologist Douglas Kenrick asked men and women to indicate the minimum percentiles of each attribute that they would find acceptable. When it came to earning capacity, women indicated that they preferred a man who earned more than 70% of all other men. In contrast, men desired a mate that earned more than 40% of all other women. Basically, it just bears out, this is the sort of resources and status hypergamy thing that seems to be borne out in the data. But it seemed like when you looked at stuff for Make Your Move that you you found a little bit of a different narrative coming through for women. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I do think men are competitive by nature. And I, this is why I think the reverse age gap, uh, like when you talk about a, a man wanting to be with a woman who earns less, um, I, I, I understand where that comes from. I don't think he's going to feel the same way if it's like this couple I interviewed for my book where he's 27 and she's 32 and, and she's supposed to be making more than him because, because, because of the age gap. And the other thing I'll, I'll, I'll point out is that if you look at the same Pew research data, yes, it shows that men are more like that, that, that married men earn more than their, their partners. But if you look at the trend, the, um, the percentage of women who are primary, breadwinners in their family has been steadily increasing. There's actually um, a higher percentage of women married to lesser educated men in the U.S. than men married to lesser educated women. Is that so not the, only in college graduates, though? Is that not only? No, it's, it's everything. So this notion of the doctor who's married to the nurse mm. or or the investment banker married to the cocktail waitress. Given- this, this is not borne out by reality. This is kind of this, this stereotype that's out there. And, and actually men are, are choosier about women's education than women are, according to the data. Given the fact that there's more women graduating university, this makes sense, though. 
you would need it to, it you would need to normalize it, for the fact that there's far more women coming out of college in order right. to ameliorate you're, you're, that you're, you're right but but there is this notion out there that men will, men will marry anybody and the women are too choosy and the data does not bear that out the data shows that when it comes to education at least men are more choosy about education than women are okay which so i know doesn't it, it doesn't fit the stereotype but it's true and, the, and then going back to david bus um i met him at a conference bunch of years ago and we were talking about some of this stuff and he remained he expressed with great certainty that that the that you know if you have 40 50 percent more women than men graduating graduating from college that there will always be like this large proportion of women who never get married and that's just the way it's going to, it, it is and that's the way it's going to be and that those women will never ever ever um, stoop so low as to marry an electrician or a plumber or anything like that and I, and I, I just don't I, I don't agree with that it's not the kind of world I want to live in I, I, I see so many examples of what I call mixed-collar relationships in the world these but you've days? also said that in your research, there's been an increase in assortative mating. The, yeah, there has. And, and I think, you know, like sometimes I, I would have interviewers ask me, well, why wasn't this an issue in 1940 when there were more men than women attending college? And my answer to that is, well, the college thing wasn't as important back then. And people weren't making decisions about about marriage as much based on whether or not somebody went to college. Well, that would um, would that not could, also fit the hypergamous women are prepared to date up and across if men are outperforming it, women, then no, it's easier? No, no, yeah, you have a point, but I, I just... If you look at some of the more recent data, particularly from Pew Research, you do see the beginnings of a, of a trend. And I hope it's a longer term trend of people being more open minded when it comes to whom they date and eventually marry. And actually, there was a, a, a brilliant reporter um, for the um, for The Guardian who interviewed me about about datanomics um, and she wrote a, a story about the book and she was telling me that she had been in a long-term relationship with a bus driver and they were, they were very happy together. Um, and so for her, and she had, you know, kind of successful friends who, you know, some of them were dating highly educated men, some weren't, and it wasn't quite the same taboo in terms of dating somebody lesser educated, at least among her friend group as it might've been for her, for her parents' generation. And so my, my hope is we're moving towards a world where the gentlemanly electrician is just as good a catch as the asshole investment banker. How easy do you think it is for women to hack that hypergamous nature? I, I mean, to me, I think a lot of this goes back to how we meet. Um, because when you talk about things like I, I want a guy who's six feet tall or makes more than $127,000 a year, whatever it is in pounds, or is this age or this amount of hair. It really sounds more like picking options on a car than it does finding your true love. And to me, all of this goes back to the cesspool that is online dating. 
Like if you if you met a guy who was five foot nine at a party, not you, but a woman met a guy who was five foot nine at a party and brilliant and funny and handsome, she's not going to notice that he's five foot nine. I mean, I, I I'm six feet tall. My wife is five two. Everybody looks tall to my wife. Like w- whether I was five eight or six two, she would think I'm tall. But when it comes down to putting a number on a screening function on a dating app. Um, people start treating dating like shopping. And there's this really unhealthy consumerist mindset that I think has infected the world of, 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 of romance in which, you know, everything is shopping. And if you don't like it, you can return it. And it's all about finding the best deal. And you can just punch in some, some metrics on a on a dating app and out will pop up you know your prince charming and a i don't think that's true and b and i think this is really the important thing that the stories of how we meet are important like you you, you could meet somebody on a dating app and not hit it off but meet the but the the very same person you could be in a you know, a, a tennis club or a jo- or a running group with and get to know him or work with them. And it would be a totally different connection than chatting with them on a dating app and meeting up at Sushi Palace at 7 p.m. And, the, the, and the, all the research shows that the stories of how we meet are really important. And people become much more invested in, in kind of stories that involve meeting in the real world, meeting in the wild. Um, it's, it's also much, um, particularly for women. Um, I, I, I don't think men fully appreciate the, the safety concerns related to online dating. I mean, I, I was on a, a podcast with a, a, a male author a, a few months ago and he was recently divorced and he was telling me this story about, um, going out in his first online first date. And he discovered that the woman who we met at the coffee shop knew everything about him because she had been Googling him. And he thought this was weird and creepy. And, and I was like, that's not weird and creepy. That, that is the way th- that's what every woman I know is doing. And it's because if you look at the, at the surveys on this, the majority of women consider online dating to be unsafe. 55% have been threatened with physical violence while using dating apps. Um, so obviously they are going to protect themselves by doing this research. They're also going to tell their roommate or their mom or their sister, I'm going to be at Sushi Palace at 7. If you don't hear from me by 10, get worried. But the problem with this beyond the obvious is that if you enter, if you go into a first date with this level of anxiety and, and fear, it, it's not going to lead to falling in like or falling in love because you're you're on guard to make sure that Robert, the handsome money manager, isn't actually Billy Bob, the married ex-con. Whereas if you were dating somebody you actually know and actually like from the real world, it might not be a great first date, but there's so much more comfort involved in that first date experience. And you can just kind of relax and get to know the person. And it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be like a, an interview in which you're trying to poke holes in their story. Based on what I 
have seen from your advice in Make Your Move, it seems to me that it's mostly um, competitive edges that specifically women uh, would be able to find by adjusting their dating strategy. So the first one would be don't be afraid of making the first move, of approaching the man, yeah. of being the protagonist in the uh, flirting relationship, right? Of suggesting that he get your number or asking for his number or whatever. And then the second one being more like a modality change that look at the other places that you can try and find people that you would want to date rather than online dating. So yeah, both of these, no matter whether they run counter to culture or expected norms or whatever, they're just opportunities as far as I can see it. All that they are are competitive edges that women can find incredibly easily by deciding that they're going to do something different to what the rest of the market does. So I've got this stat that I always throw around about podcasts. So 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode three. And of the 10% that do, 90% don't make it past episode 20. So by making it to episode 21, you were in the top 1% of all podcasters <laughs> ever in history, right? I love that. It's awesome. Great stat. That's consistency. Consistency is the most underrated and rare internet creator value that, that that exists as far as i can see very very few people do a hard thing at the same time every single week for an extended period of time similarly to this if most women aren't doing a thing however you know that there's a competitive edge by doing that thing we've already seen it's borne out in the data if you decide to be the protagonist when approaching somebody on average, you will end up with a preferable partner to if you wait for those people to come back around, right? Nobel Prize shit. Yep. Other side of that is that I, I don't think that online dating is a fantastically fun experience for most men. Most men are kind of wistfully sat on their own, not really getting matches from women. And most women are getting matches from men that they're not tremendously interested in and potentially fearful of, even if they do manage to get a match and then go on a date. And then it's this sort of weird performative thing where you're fact-checking against their profile for all of it. So both of these are just competitive edges, but the same way as the consistency thing being a real easy hack to be able to get through podcasting, what are most podcasters not doing, which is still a good outcome? Okay, consistency. What are most women not doing in the dating market, which is a good outcome? They're not approaching and they're relying too heavily on online dating. Yeah, I, that, that's a, a great summary. I mean, the only thing I'd add to the online dating thing is that to me it goes beyond, you know, coming up with a little edge or a little strategic advantage. I mean, th there is a fundamental efficacy problem with online dating. There was a study out of the UK a few months ago, which found that the divorce rate for couples who meet on dating apps is six times higher than it is uh, for couples who meet in the real world. It was a Stanford University study, which um, claimed in the body of the report that there was not much difference in the one-year breakup rates of couples who meet online versus the real world. But if you dig into the appendix and you look at the actual data, the one-year breakup rate for couples who meet online in this study was 16%. For couples who meet through friends and family, it was 8%. For couples who meet at work, it was 6%. And for couples who meet in a house of worship, it was 1%. 1%. Yeah, so, I quoted this the so, other day. So, so it's, not, it's not just that or the women are relying too heavily on one thing and the need to diversify their strategy. I actually think there is something fundamentally awful about online dating that is going to lead to um, uh, less. I mean, I, believe it or not, I'm a romantic at heart. 
and despite um, the incredibly I, autistic view yeah. of dating and yes, yes. data, I, mean, I, yeah. I, I want I, I want people to be happy and I want people to find true love, and I just think it's really hard to find true love when you're going out with complete strangers on a dating app. And I, I'm always like comparing it to friendship. Um, I don't know if you've heard me with this, this stick before, but, but Chris, do you have a best friend? I do. Best mate, I guess. You would yeah, do. yeah. 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 Okay. okay. How did you meet your best mate? Through another one. But in the real world? Yeah. 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 By referral, but in, in the real world. And, and you, you have real world experiences together. Um, Many. Yes. Right. Can you imagine going on bestmate.com and finding a connection like the one you have with your best mate? Not going to happen. No, I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, obviously it's like human beings evolved as social animals. We connect through shared real world experience, like, like all primates do. So I'm, I mean, yes, I, I believe you can get an, an edge by logging off the dating apps. But to me, it goes beyond that. I, I, I worry about the state of romance and about the about people's ability to find true love if they're relying on dating complete strangers. Um, you know, I, I gave a, a talk at Rollins College, which is a small liberal arts school in Florida a few months back. And we were talking about this online dating stuff. And um Oh, at the end of the class, a woman raised her hand and said, okay, I get it. Nobody likes online dating. It sucks. But how the heck am I supposed to meet somebody if not through an app? So I took a chance and I asked a question. And the question was, how many of you have somebody you already know and like from the real world whom you've ever wondered about dating? There were 40 kids in this group, 40 hands went up. Now, look, I, I know that if it was a group of 48 year olds, it might have been a different, different result than polling a group of 22 year olds or 21 year olds. But I do ask this question a lot. And what I find is that the majority of singles already have identified somebody they already know and like from the real world who they've been interested in dating. So my view is you're already probably a third of the way, maybe even halfway there with, with this person. And like, if all that's holding you back is some fear of ruining the friendship, don't worry about that. Like, you know, take a chance, um, embrace the awkwardness, take a chance with the person who you know you have a connection with, as opposed to going out on a hundred blind dates with strangers from the internet. One of the last things that me and you both agree on, I think is um, a suggestion that women should uncheck the college box when it comes to looking at who they're trying to date. And I think that you're right. Um, online dating has facilitated a much more uh, like technocratic, bureaucratic, predisposed, transactional way of looking at, okay, so what are the things that I want? Like it's you know, options on a car, optional extra, well, I need the air conditioning and the leather seats and right. whatever, whatever, right? Like it's, it's not the way that things work. And it doesn't account for in real life changes. I've got friends who are five foot eight, five foot nine guys that aren't into the gym. They're not in like ridiculous shape or anything, but they crush on nights out because they're charming and they're funny and they're outgoing and, and they can hold eye contact and they're great. And you think, well, it, that person on a, an app can't get any of those, which are the characteristics that we value the most overall. So what dating apps have optimized for are people selecting some of the most arbitrary features of a mate that they can 
whilst uh, omitting all of the ones that we probably genuinely do care about, right? However, yeah, exactly. However, I think that one of the challenges, I, I was listening to you on a podcast with um, a couple of girls. It was a dating podcast. And you were talking about like unchecking the college box. And one of the girls said, well, I've got a postgraduate degree. And, you know, even if the guy that I was speaking to had like a, a community college degree, I might feel a little bit, I don't really know. Are we going to be able to have this connection? So I do think that there is work to be done um, to try and undo some of the predispositions that girls have around who they're going to be attracted to. There is a huge pool of sexless men. This is where MGTOW and the incel sort of black pill forums have come out of. Yes, they're at the very, very tail end of this, but still there is a big, big pool of men who we haven't really spoken about today on the podcast. This is mostly kind of college for college or college for professional. As you start to drop a little bit further down that hierarchy for men, you know, there is a huge, huge pool of guys down there that would make absolutely fantastic partners, I'm sure, but might not hit those quantifiable metrics of success. So I definitely think that women opening up that dating pool a little bit more is a, a good thing for them to do. Yeah, and, and like the guys I'm thinking about aren't necessarily the, the young incel guys. I mean, I um, for years and years, I, I, I coached travel baseball um and the you know even though i live in kind of a leafy suburb the travel baseball crowd tends to be the parents tend to be a little more blue collar so it's a lot of policemen and electricians and guys who run landscaping businesses things like that and um they're awesome guys like you know you know they're real men not like me like you know know, um and i keep thinking to myself and also like a lot of them earn a shitload of money, um, you know, doing uh, construction, all, all sorts, I mean, not running businesses. I always like to joke that my plumber, um, I guarantee earns more than me because every time he comes here late at night, he's driving an Audi. So, so, so the, so the, these guys, not only are they really good guys, um, they probably, some, a lot of them probably earn more than you think. And I, I, I suspect you know, I, I think there are a lot of women who maybe think they want, you know, the, the smart lawyer or banker, but if you put them in the room with kind of the um, the manly man who can like fix your dishwasher or change your tire, or, I, or I, even I can change a tire, but, but you know, like they, they, some of these guys, um, they might actually feel more of a connection with than the university educated blokes that they've been having trouble with. John Berger, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you do, where should they go? Um, so my website is johnberger.com. Um, I'm off of Twitter these days, but uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm, I think I'm John underscore Berger one on Instagram. Um, also, if you have a book club and you want to read one of my books, um, I've partnered. Obviously, you can read it if you want, but I partnered with um, with a uh, an author platform called bookyaya.com. And basically it's a platform that, that connects, um, book clubs with authors who maybe could do remote events, um, you know, with the, with book clubs. So you can find me on bookyaya as well. Cool. I, I really appreciate reading, um, a lot of the dynamics that I'm familiar with and I've been learning about and are very interested in 
But from a, a female perspective, I think that it's something that I hadn't considered. And the more that I think about the experience that women have with dating, the more that I can understand where we're at. So I appreciate the work that you do, John. I look forward to whatever it is that you write next. I think it'll be really, really cool. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. 